Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. My name is Mark Yarbrough. I serve as the VP for Academics, Academic Dean, teaching the Bible Exposition Department. And uh, our topic today uh, here at uh, the Table Podcast is, broadly speaking, the relationship of the Old Testament to the New Testament. And we're going to break this up into three distinct categories, but uh, that'll be a great dialogue for us. It's timeless. It's something we need to be thinking about on a regular basis. And uh, I'm joined here with uh, three wonderful guests and friends. Uh, To my left is Dr. Mark Bailey, serves as the President and Senior Professor of Bible Exposition. It's always good to have you involved in these discussions. Great to be here. You betcha. To my right is Dr. Daryl Bach, the Executive Director of Cultural Engagement and Research Professor in New Testament Studies. And I tell you what, it's safe to say that in this regard, the table has turned. (laughs) You you usually sit right here and host and facilitate these discussions, but today... And I'm at your right hand. You are at my right (laughs) hand. There you go. And uh, we are also joined uh, by Andy Stanley. Uh, Andy, thank you for joining us. Greatly appreciate that. And um, he is live right now in um, Atlanta, Georgia, and many people know Andy, uh, founder, um, if you will, of North Point Ministries. And Andy, correct me if I'm wrong, but you are still pastoring and preaching at the Buckhead campus in Atlanta. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah, I've been there about a year. You betcha. And uh, author and frequent conference speaker. And so thanks for joining us. This is going to be a great discussion today. We greatly appreciate it. And Dallas grad. Don't forget that. And a Dallas Theological Seminary graduate. That's right. Indeed. So thanks for hopping in on this one today. We've got some uh, fun things to talk about. And so broadly speaking, again, in the connections of the Old Testament to the New Testament, we're actually going to jump in into a topic into the New Testament – Okay? Because this issue comes up, and it frequently surfaces in all sorts of uh, discussions of theological dialogues. It is an issue that seems to rear its head uh, every so often in evangelicalism about showing the connectivity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so, Dr. Brock, you wrote a little pamphlet on the book of Acts. A pamphlet is probably <laughs> not good? the right word. It took you yeah. several years to write that <laughs> exactly pamphlet. right. <laughs> but uh, you wrote this uh, commentary. So I'm going to come to you first okay. on this question, because we're going to move into a dialogue that takes place in Acts chapter 15. But before we do, can you frame the book of Acts? Now, just a little answer, you know, just succinctly. But what's the broad overview of the book of Acts? And how can we think about Acts chapter 15 fitting into the book as a whole? Okay, well, Acts is actually a second volume tied to the Gospel of Luke, so it's Luke-Acts together. Together they constitute – Luke is written more of the New Testament than any other writer. Some people think that's Paul, but it's actually Luke by a nose, but he makes it. And uh, he is trying to explain how what appears to be a new religious movement is actually a quite old movement that in the ancient world it wasn't what was new that was important, but what had been time-tested, particularly when it comes to religion and that kind of thing. Christianity appeared to be the new thing on the block, and it also had a surprising element to it, and that is that it was attempting to bring Jews and Gentiles together. 
That was controversial uh, because of the history that existed between Jews and Gentiles and the need for reconciliation between those groups. And so Luke is really the story of how, how the gospel was intended to be uh, for all people, and it was designed to be that way from the time God made his covenant commitments to Abraham. Sure. And so, uh, so this new thing is actually old. It goes back to the patriarchs, and he's trying to show those connections and yet also trying to deal with the differences that this combining of these two ethnic groups brought to the program of God. So you've got continuity and discontinuity literally located in chairs next to one another, and theologians have wrestled with that um, oh, dance yes. right. <laughs> uh, ever since the music started playing. <laughs> yeah, the continuity and the discontinuity. Okay, well now take take me further then into Acts 15. What what is going on in Acts 15? How does that then fit into this question of continuity? Well, and Acts 15 is right in the middle of that uh, of that transition, and what had happened, of course, is the gospel had gone out to Gentiles, and the question had become. Do Gentiles, in effect, have to become Jews in order to become Christians? Now, yeah. I didn't mean to confuse you there, but it's but that's basically it. Do they have to engage in circumcision, which was the sign of the covenant commitment made to Abraham, in order to be Christians? And of course, what had happened with Cornelius was Peter had preached the gospel, and the Spirit had come down on them, uh, indicating that God had accepted them without them having to have uh, having to have participated in circumcision. So when we get to Acts 15 and that gets explained, that actually becomes a key to how that situation is resolved. And the answer becomes Gentiles don't have to become Jews and don't have to connect to the law at that point in order to receive the benefits that come through Jesus yeah, Christ. Interesting way of phrasing that. Do the Gentiles have to become Jews before they become Christians? Andy, jump in on this one. What? You, you have done an awful lot of teaching and communication, uh, in particular through the book of Acts and Acts 15. What do you understand as you're communicating this, the central issue, and connect this from what you understand to be larger issues in Christianity? Yeah, I think this is, in terms of uh, just the local church, this is a passage of Scripture that um, I, I've, I've never heard. I'm sure there are a lot of sermons on it, but generally it's uh, in an overview of Acts. But the decision and the implications of the decision um, that were made, I think, have specific and direct ramifications on the local church. To begin with, I think, and, and you guys weigh, on this, weigh in on this, I think it is impossible for us to understand the emotion of that meeting that this group of people, and correct me if I'm wrong, but this is 19 or 20 years after the resurrection. So for 19 years or so, um, there has been this tension within the local church, and finally it's come to a head. So this this isn't, you know, two weeks after the resurrection, what are we right. going to do? This tension has been building and building and building, and now, um, as we've already talked about, you have many, many uh, Gentiles who have embraced the faith are now and are now being asked to embrace not just circumcision and not just the law, but this is a way of life. This is the the old covenant is a world view. It, it encompasses everything. It touches on everything, and so finally, after twenty years, um, the leaders of the Jerusalem Church realize how really how realistic is it for Gentiles not to simply be circumcised, but to I mean as they as um, I guess it was Peter who said, guys, really, I mean it's difficult enough for us to carry this. Do we really expect the Gentile world to basically relearn everything? So my point being, I don't think that we can fully appreciate the um, 
the, uh, I don't know if sacrifice is the right word, but the concession that these Jews in, this, you know, in Jerusalem who had been brought up to, for whom this was a way of life, the concession they made by saying, you know what, we are going to essentially, I don't want to use the word unhitch because nobody likes that word. We're essentially going to allow Gentiles to develop, in a sense, their own approach to faith and not require them to do but what basically has characterized our lives for, you know forever so you know in John 17 when Jesus prays for unity this was an extraordinary extraordinary step of unity and we can get into this later but you know when they write the letter to the, the gentiles in Antioch um, you know from a theological perspective we get all tied up into what were those requirements and, and right, right. my point is they, they, this was not ask. This wasn't about law keeping. This was about peacekeeping. This was everybody's got to make concessions because at the end of the day, we cannot have two churches. We can't have the Jewish church and the Gentile church. So at whatever it takes, there needs to be one church. This was an extraordinarily emotional meeting, and the decision they made. Um, I don't think we can even begin to comprehend. Um, the, just what a big day that was. Um, and again, I tell the folks in our church when I preach on this, hey, we are the folks in Antioch, okay? We're in Antioch waiting on their decision. Their decision impacted every single one of us who are Gentile believers. And I think it's important to appreciate that this actually was a revisit of the question, that after Peter had had um, had been with Cornelius and stayed with Cornelius. Initially, there was a huge pushback in Acts 11 to yep. say, Peter, you did the wrong thing. You shouldn't have yep. stayed with them. This isn't right. And he walked through. <laughs> His response was basically, your complaint isn't against me. Your complaint is against what God did in, in our midst as I was in the midst of preaching. I like to tease people that when Peter was giving his speech. He never got a chance to warm up the organ and give the invitation because God acted before he was done. the same thing. They hadn't even hummed the first invitation hymn, and the circumcised <laughs> yeah. believers with him were – remember the word? They were astonished. Right. They were, That's right. They could not – this is a big deal. They could not begin to comprehend that God was doing for Gentiles what he had done. This wasn't like, yeah, we saw this coming. Yeah, isn't this great? They were astonished. This and they were astonished because they were thinking Jewishly, and the Jewish thinking that was going on was there is no way the Spirit of God can indwell someone unless that person's been cleansed. Yep. And so, you know, I, when I read this passage, I go, you know, when they were astonished, I said, let me translate that for you. <gasps> Did you see that? I mean, that, and there are six witnesses there, not just two. Yeah. So, yeah. so everything that God is doing is designed to reinforce what's taken place here, and that all happened outside of any activity of circumcision or anything else. Their mere faith in Christ had brought forgiveness and the cleansing that leads to the, the presence of the Spirit in the life and the new life that they had received through the gospel. Yep. Okay, so if the question was, do the Gentiles need to be circumcised? Mark, we're going to come to you. Okay, we're going by first names, mm -hmm. by the way. Okay, so Mark, we're coming to you. Uh, what was the solution to the problem? And why was it so astounding? We're back in this mm -hmm. issue of shock, shock and awe in the text for the trajectory of the church. Sure. Well, I think the solution is twofold. One is the question had to be asked, uh, what does it take for a Gentile to become a believer? Right. And uh, the response of Peter that's followed up by James is that it can't be the law because we can't even keep the law. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that, that great verse that, yeah. that's found in verse 11, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Yeah. 
And so the issue of no, uh, you don't have to be Jewish to be a Christian. Right. Uh, Jews can be Christians, but you can be a Gentile and be a Christian without becoming Jewish. Right. And without keeping the Mosaic Code, uh, for which obviously uh, th- th- there was a whole change that I think we often forget that Hebrews talks about. With the changing of the priesthood, there came a necessity of the changing of the law. And as Andy said, it's been a 20-year history of uh, from the event to the realization, and Peter stumbles on it in Joppa. I, I love that Joppa is the place where a Jewish prophet struggled to take the gospel to the Gentiles in Jonah, <laughs> yeah, and right, now we've right. got a Jewish yeah. you know, apostle who struggles to take the gospel to the Gentiles right. in Joppa again. So Joppa, Joppa, you know, bing, bing. Yeah, there it is. And, uh, and the irony, I've never touched an unclean thing, and he's, he's sleeping at the house of a taxidermist, <laughs> or maybe he's not a taxidermist, but he's a tanner at least, right. so he's mm-hmm. dealing with, he's touching dead Something animals unclean, all the sure, time right. and doesn't see the inconsistency of it. So the fact that Peter is the one who ultimately stands up in Jerusalem means he's starting to get it. He's struggling with it, but he's still starting to get it. But in James and the explanation of it comes, obviously, with James' explanation is this is in keeping with Old Testament you know, prediction in the book of Amos that there would be the, the gospel you know, would affect Gentiles as well as Jews, and that uh, there would be an outpouring of God's people as he pulls a people for himself, which that lost word is a word that's predominantly used for the chosen people. It now becomes a new people of God. You know, not that the God has cast away the the Jews, but he he draw people to himself. Yeah. He drew a people to himself in the Old Testament. He's drawing Gentiles to himself as a part of this church in the New Testament. But so salvation was the one issue that had to be solved. But the second issue that comes up in the passage, which is that practical issue, is a, an issue of fellowship. How do we take Jews with their background, Gentiles coming in from their background? How do they become unified in Christ through a grace in the Lord Jesus Christ and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? But now, how do they live together yeah. coming out of yep. those backgrounds? And I think the fellowship factor was, ironically, the things that uh, are listed, the four counsel of here's what we would re- ask of the Gentiles, I think is a consideration of living with liberty on the part of the Gentiles because they now are going to be in fellowship with Jewish people who have this this law steeped in their heritage. And ironically, the four requirements really come out of Leviticus 17 and 18, which were the same things a Gentile had to observe if he came into the Jewish camp of the Old Testament by faith, he would have been asked to do those that very same things. So in essence, the continuity of the Jewish community, these are things that some would call call a moral and some would simply call ceremonial. Right. I'm not sure you can divide those two in the passage, but these were things that would be highly offensive for a Jewish congregation. It would be like going in uh, today and, and in essence talking that there, there's, you know, there was nothing to the Abrahamic covenant, there was nothing to the Mosaic covenant, those things weren't important for life and, right. you know, as a Jew. That would be highly offensive. And so I think what you have is a great sense of deference, is, if I could use that word, that Gentile believers ought to have for their Jewish brethren in these four areas because that's going to make fellowship at the table. Uh, a, a much easier uh, experience. Right. So I think the issue of salvation was was clarified, and I think the issue of deference for the purpose of fellowship. Can I uh, do something different so that Jew and Gentile can sit in the same body and have great fellowship? Yeah. So that's how I see what those okay. four requirements okay. are. It, it's crystal clear in the text, Avi, in regard to issues of salvation, mm-hmm. right? I mean, Jew and Gentile, it is, it is not in obedience to the law. It is through Christ. Okay. Now, now Daryl, 
you have taught a lot in this area. There are other views, and sometimes you'll hear this circulate about what these things are. I'm not disagreeing mm-hmm. with what you said, mm-hmm. but what are some other dominant ways that people view these things of going, why these things? There, there are two other explanations besides Leviticus 17 and 18, which obviously right. is in play. And because some people make the observation, Leviticus 17 and 18 don't cover everything that's listed yeah, here. Yeah, this may not be a, this may be right. a both and here. Exactly there are multiple right. things the, that are being addressed. And the right. fact is, right. we don't know exactly right. what, what, these, what has triggered these four things other than Many of them are associated with the types of things that would happen in pagan cults or that would happen in Greco-Roman associations, uh, things tied to paganism and to right. pagan worship and to, and to affirmation of the polytheism of the culture, that kind of thing. So, so there could be an undercurrent to this that says, you know, don't do anything that associates directly with, with things associated with paganism. and. Um, a parallel to this is the discussion of meat offered to idols in 1 right. Corinthians 8 to 10, right. where you actually get four yeah. different solutions depending on what you're dealing <laughs> That's with. That's right, exactly. Uh, you're free to buy meat in the market, okay? You don't ask any questions. That's in contrast to what happened in Judaism. Right. You don't. You shouldn't be in the temple to begin with, but should you go, you don't eat anything <laughs> sacrificed there. So that's yeah. not something you're not supposed to yeah. do. You're free to eat meat offered at a meal in someone's house unless or until someone says that's been offered to an idol, and then you go on what I call the Christian diet. Uh, <laughs> you're, yeah. you're, you're not allowed to follow through on that. So, so there's a sensitivity about how – and this gets to the fellowship point, which is there's a sensitivity about how uh, – how Gentile table fellowship and their general response to paganism in general rubs off to the Jewish person with whom now they're sharing fellowship. Um, there's also a flip side to this that's important, and that is within Acts we do see communities made up primarily of Jewish people who are still very Jewish in their practices. Um, so that, so that. Uh, and in fact, Paul, in numerous parts of his letters, say, I don't want you fighting over dates, I don't want you fighting over food, those kinds of things, um, as long as someone isn't trying to make someone else do something that they, in good conscience, can't do. Yeah. And so so there's this, there, as I said, there's this dance between continuity and discontinuity in which the mistake is to lay down a law about how everyone's supposed to behave in relationship to their own conscience, about how they live out their walk with God. God after they come to Christ. Yeah, that's helpful. Andy, let me come back to you. Um, you you do an awful lot of teaching and communication with individuals that didn't grow up in the church. And right. uh, so when you're communicating a passage like this, um, why is it important? Why is this an important text to understand and embrace? And what are you, as you talk to people and you field questions and are engaging them, um, what are some of the complexities, things they're wrestling with when they come to a passage like this? Well, the people that I want to communicate with are not wrestling with a text like this. They're not even Fair reading enough. a text like Fair this. Fair enough. You're, so you're I, saying, welcome so to the I book in, of Acts, yeah. I am introducing them to these things for yeah. the very first time. And the way I preach and teach, especially when – well, really all the time, is I think – I try to think sequentially before I think theologically. And we all have a theological framework that we're not going to be able to break out of. In fact, that's what's happening in, in Acts 15. That's what right. happens in right. Cornelius' home. In fact, my favorite line when Peter, just to, to, to get off track for a second, when Peter goes into Cornelius' home, he's talking to all these Gentiles and says, you know, before yesterday, I really considered all of you impure 
and unclean. <laughs> but, you know, I've had a breakthrough. I mean, what the insult, I mean, yeah. he insults everybody in the room and says, this is my first time to ever be in a Gentile's home. <laughs> so think about where the church was, again, 20 years, um, you know, after the resurrection, there, there's still a struggle. But anyway, back to your point, I want people to understand these passages sequentially. And what I mean by that is that, as we've talked about already, there is a storyline going on here that began with Abraham, that I'm going to bless the entire world through you, who becomes a family, that becomes a nation. Right. We have a, 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 mount, a covenant with Mount Sinai with a nation. That covenant is coming to an end. Jesus declares that he's fulfilled it. And in Acts 15, it's just one more narrative in a sequence of narratives that is opening the gospel to the entire world. And in Acts 15, the way I preach it is, Everybody is invited. Everybody is invited. Everybody is included. It is a brand new day. Um, Jesus came to introduce something brand new to the world, a new movement, his church, a new covenant, a new ethic, his new command, and consequently, hopefully we'll get to later, a brand new apologetic for why we believe. So again, for me, this isn't theological as much as it is sequential, and it represents an invitation to a group of people three, 300 miles north that are deciding you know, do can I really do this? I mean, you know, if if they hadn't decided the way they decided, you know, the men would pull up on Sunday morning and say, "Honey, you know, you and the kids run on in. I really got to think about this because, you know, this is this is going to require surgery." Right. So this was again, this was a, a really really big deal. So, you know, in a contemporary or in any church in, in modern times, this chap Acts 15 it represents two big things. We've only touched on one, but you know what we've touched on so far, the doors were thrown open wide to to the entire world. So it's it's a big deal, and it certainly has relevance to the modern church. Yeah, and back on the words of continuity and discontinuity, brand new and yet very old. Yeah, I mean, and, we've and got the, this tension here because, I mean, obviously in terms of uh, the fulfillment of promise. I mean, here we are, and Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. I know you're not disagreeing with that. I get that. But I'm saying nope. it's brand new and yet very old. Yeah, Andy, yeah. I want to ask you a question, and that is you alluded to this earlier that some people have given you a hard time because you used the word unhitched. And uh, I think the question I have for you is what you were really saying was, and if I'm putting words in your mouth, you, you can tell me I'm doing you it. You won't be the first. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you mean it's happened before? Okay. Right. Well, I'm glad you've welcomed <laughs> me to the table. Uh, yeah. Anyway, so uh, is what you were really saying when you said unhitched is the point is is that we aren't living, we aren't being asked to live under the old covenant anymore, and what's Correct. associated with yeah. the old covenant. People heard you say old testament in the context well, said, of a sermon. I said Old Testament, and that I on the screen, you know, I live and die by you know people taking pictures of my screen. Um, <laughs> I should have put Old Covenant instead of Old Testament. But the reason, and please don't lose your question. I want to come back to this. The reason I did is the point I was trying to make in that particular message, in that particular series that followed another series, all of which went together, but that's a story for another day, is I want our church and our congregation to understand it's not just the law. There was a worldview, there was a perspective, there was an approach to life, and all of that was going away, and that we as Christians need to unhitch from all of that. There's a value system that's associated with the Old Covenant that's not so much stated as inferred. I mean, it's as simple as I mean, we know in the Great Commission, Jesus said, not only are you to love your enemies, now we're going to leave our land, we're going to leave this piece of geography, and we're going to go out into all nations. Well, you know, for about 20 years, they all pretty much stayed around 
stayed around home because, again, they, they're, they're not even willing to go into the home of a Gentile. How are they going to fulfill the Great Commission? So there's so much more that is illustrated in the narratives of the, of the Old Covenant, or the Old Testament, I should say, that stem from the Old Covenant, but it's broader than that. Uh, and uh, my plan was to come back later and talk about that. In fact, in the message, um, I said, hey, we'll come back and talk about that later, talking to my congregation, because I threw out a little bit of a teaser <laughs> that became um, a bomb. So anyway, so well, and, me, and the other, yeah, go ahead. Go well, So let me follow up. So what? let me tell you what I heard, didn't hear you say that I think you've been accused of saying. You weren't saying, um, do away with Proverbs, do away with the Psalms, do away mm-hmm. with the prophets. What you were saying is there was a certain attitude of life. And of course, one of the things that makes this complicated is you not only had the worldview of the Old Testament, but you had the worldview that had grown out of the Old Testament that had become certain aspects of Judaism that Christianity also was challenging. And those things were kind of gotten mixed together in a, yep. in a completely Carol, if I can, different combination. If I can rephrase this, okay? yeah. there was an improper view of the law right. that they were combating in Acts chapter 15. So when the statement is made that why put a yoke upon them that we either, neither we nor our forefathers, that's talking about there was some level of an improper view of the law because if there was, if I can phrase it this way, an obedience-based perspective of the law that brought you to a righteousness before God, there's huge problems with that. That's right. And so I, I, I think there's something – what I heard you say, there's something very specific about the old – about what yeah. the Old Testament generated among Jewish people that the Christianity was challenging, so that the yes. challenge wasn't directly against the Old Testament, but what – at least a view of the Old Testament had generated. Um, yes, but the New Covenant stands in contrast to so much of the Old Covenant. Um, I do think I don't think they conflict in a way that puts God at conflict with Himself. But that was then. This is now. This that was for them. This is you know this is for the world. So I I do think there was a we've got to let go of. You know, not only the old covenant itself, but some of the things associated. I, th- I think we're saying the same thing. Yeah, we are. I, I, because I think, I think what people heard, at least some people heard or misheard, is that you were letting go the entirety of what's in the Old Testament. You yeah. definitely were not saying that. Well, the reason this was not a dust up in our churches is because I preached from the Old Testament. Frequently, I just done a series on the life of David. Four mm-hmm. weeks ago, I did a, a, ser- a, a message from the life of Joseph. So, in our church, this, nobody heard me say we're doing away with the Old Testament. And, um, but again, you know, people hear what they want to hear. So, thank you for that clarification. That's great. Yeah. Great. Okay, so we just said a bunch of things, and we could have gone a lot of different directions with it, but. Acts 15 is an important passage because in many ways it's a watershed moment. We see the tension of Jew and Gentile. It's great clarity on salvation is by grace through faith in Christ. We see that, that uh, the statements that are made of things that uh, the Gentiles should not do are probably based on two different issues out of the book of Leviticus, things that would be highly offensive. Uh, Mark, as you talked about, there's also another things of, like, don't go down that path again, you Gentiles, if that's what you were associated, because salvation is by grace through faith in Christ. And so we kind of have this picture, again, of a new era, but yet 
it's a very old promise that is now being fulfilled in Christ. And so we've got this tension, and that's part when we have that language of continuity and discontinuity. Let's move a different direction and talk about some of the contemporary challenges that the Old Testament poses for some Christians and uh, for those that are questioning Christianity. Uh, Andy, again, I know you deal with an awful lot of people that this topic probably comes up or it surfaces. So when yeah. you think about that of contemporary challenges that the Old Testament in particular poses for either young, young Christians or for those that are just thinking about Christianity or, or looking at it, mm-hmm. how would you kind of respond to that? Um, there's two things. The, the challenge, again, don't, I'm not thinking theologically for a minute. I'm just thinking purely about my audience, a skeptical audience, and, and honestly, a Jewish audience. We have so many Jewish people who come to our church, but they don't believe. I. They don't even read. They haven't read. They don't know much about their own scripture because sure. they don't believe it's true. They believe it's it's myth. They have a very secular, they have a very non-traditional Jewish, Orthodox Jewish uh, view of their own scripture. So this isn't Gentile versus Jew anymore. The challenge, the contemporary challenge is this, that the Old Testament is at the front of our book, but it is at the back of our apologetic method. So and what I mean by that is this. We know historically and we know logically that the Jew, Gentile people did not become all that interested in the Jewish scripture until after they became interested in a particular Jew. So, in fact, we know from, you know, from Acts 10, Acts 15, and just the history of between Gentiles and Jews that followed the first century, um, there was so much tension between the two and continued to be for, for hundreds of years after that. So, historically, it was Jesus first, Old Testament second. Logically, it's Jesus first, Old Testament second. But for most Christians, that's not how they're presented Christianity. As children, we're given the whole thing. We're given a book. We're said, this is God's Word. It's God's holy Word. Don't set your coffee cup on top of it. It's all true. And we agreed and believed it was all true before we read it. And probably the person who told us it was all true they hadn't read it either. So we didn't come to this sequentially, and we didn't come to this logically or even historically. We came to it as children. So consequently, most Christians, because that's their view, and they've never understood the relationship or the sequence between Jesus and the Old Covenant, that becomes problematic once they become adults. And then for people who are outside the faith, to front load the gospel with Genesis through Malachi, to front load the gospel with the creation story, um, it's an insurmountable obstacle. So those are some of the challenges, and that affects the way I preach and teach. And my my goal, especially for students, I'm not concerned about our faith or probably the faith of most of the folks who listen to this podcast. My concern is the next generation, and I want them to know that Christianity can stand on its own two nail-scarred resurrection feet. And as terrible as this may sound, it doesn't need to be propped up by the Old Testament. Now, when I say that, people immediately begin quoting all the verses that Peter and Paul used to, you know, substantiate and to defend Christianity, which I totally understand, and that made perfect sense in their culture. It does not make as much sense in our culture. Okay. um, Wow. Let's give some thoughts on that, because, I mean, obviously, when you hear language like propped up, um, boy, there's a lot of things that come to mind. Let's 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 chew on this one for a little while. Like maybe not inviting out? me back to this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's well, what we're you, unpacking you, here. Let, let's, yep. let me, let's go here, and and I'm going to ask you a question as well. What you are again? What you're not saying is is that the Old Testament is irrelevant to the story of Jesus. Absolutely not. And you're not saying that um, 
that the Old Testament is um, is something that can be dispensed with. What you're saying yeah. is is that the that Christians need to make sense out of the Old Testament by making sense out of Jesus. And if you make sense out of Jesus and you make sense out of the way the apostles used an appeal to the Old Testament, you will, you will understand how the whole of the Bible fits together in a much more effective way than, than if you um, just try and defend the Old Testament on its own in such a way that it gets detached from what Jesus brings to that total picture. Exactly. Why you should you should come up after my sermons and explain what I'm trying to say. That was <laughs> but again, but again, I'm thinking my my audi- the audience I have in mind is a very. I am not preaching to the choir, mm-hmm. and um, I, and I, I've been doing I've been teaching and preaching this way consistently and intentionally for about nine years, and it makes a big difference. It removes – I mean, I, my favorite verse, our, our marching orders are from Acts 15, our churches, when James said, we should not make it difficult for those who are turning to God. We should not make it difficult. So I say to preachers and teachers and church leaders, come on, we should not make it difficult. Now, we're not – this isn't about dumbing anything down or compromising, but let's not create unnecessary obstacles. The only obstacle should be, is Christ? Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God, did he rise from the dead? And if he rose from the dead, game on. Um, you know, it, it's interesting. I I don't know if I can find it now, but I, I wrote in my notes what the Apostle Paul didn't say. He did not say, if there is no Old Testament, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. He said, if there is no resurrection, then Jesus didn't rise and our preaching and teaching is useless. So our faith rises and falls on the resurrection. But when a person um, comes to the conclusion that Jesus is the Son of God, then you trust everything he said, including what he said about the law and the prophets. So, it's, yeah. it, again, yeah. it's sequential. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on The Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. Now, yeah. it's, it's interesting. Let me jump in on this. I'm going to come to you because we had a discussion about this a little a little bit when we were uh, chatting on a whole different topic. But it is interesting because here's what I wrestle with a little bit, Andy, with what you've said in terms of the propping up. Um, when I look at the New Testament as a whole and you see the utilization of the Old Testament by the New Testament writers, they use that as a defense to establish their case on the continuity at, at a certain level. Uh, you were talking, uh, Mark, um, on the Book of Romans in particular. Right. Just yeah, thoughts I'm, on that? Yeah, yeah I'm amazed, and in, Andy, in I hear what you're saying. It goes back to a, an, an old conversation I had with uh, the Lordship Salvation debate, where I asked uh, James Montgomery Boyce, 
uh, does my four-year-old have to make Jesus Lord of his toys in order to become a Christian? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, the, and the conversation that pursued is if my four-year-old denied that Jesus was the Lord, <clears throat> that would be a disqualifying aspect to his faith. But uh, the implications of obedience and lordship uh, to receive Jesus as Savior uh, is a conversation that probably continues to plague most of us in, you know, our maturity of how obedient. Do I have to give up pride to be a Christian? Do I have to? Can I not be pugnacious and be a Christian? You know, what sin? What sins do I have to give up in order to be a Christian? Becomes a big loaded question. At the same time. It, you know, that simplicity of faith in Christ because of who he is, based upon, obviously, the death and resurrection of Christ that proves who he is. I'm amazed that when Paul writes to the Romans, whom he has never been with, uh, he is making a case for the gospel with incredible amounts of quotations from the Old Testament to prove that it's not ritual, it's not law. In other words, his, the whole argument of Romans for getting to the message that is in Acts <laughs> is a message to a group of people in Rome. And so the issue of, under, I don't understand how much they would have or would not have known about the Old Testament quotations in right. Rome. But it was, a, it was a very critical part of his argumentation for, right. for the gospel. And so I, I, I don't think it's an either or. I mean, I think it's a, a both it and. It depends on the audience. And it, it depends on I mean, where the heart and the mind of that audience. audience. Exactly. And I mean, so going to your person? illustration about your child, a Jewish-Gentile mix, a purely secular audience. Um, you know, my friend Frank Turek, who goes on to college campuses and looks for the most skeptical people, it complete. I mean, P Peter's presentation at Cornelius's home was different than on in Acts when he walks into yeah. the streets of the city Certainly. of Jerusalem right. and says, "Let me. Li this is what you all grew up knowing was eventually going to happen." So exactly. it is. It begins with knowing the audience. So I don't think we can find yeah. a an approach. But I think as communicators, we have to, again, know our audience and begin where people are. I think, totally, totally, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt, but that's, no, 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 I, and totally I, that's different, exactly my point. And totally different than Paul's presentation in Athens that we have all used exactly. for so many times. Exactly. That's yeah. right. Yeah. I, I like to say, you know, I do a lot of work on college campuses, and I give this advice when I'm on a college campus, which is, uh, do you want to debate inerrancy or do you want to talk about Jesus? And what I will say to the college students is, the person who want I was an unbeliever. I came to faith in college. I did not grow up in a Christian home. I knew what an unbeliever does in deflecting the discussion of the gospel because I did it. Okay, so whenever Jesus kind of got close to my heart before I came to faith, I would do things like let's talk about you know the Af African who's never heard, or let yeah. let me bring up the objections that I have about the Old Testament. And the reason I was doing that is he was that person was getting close to what I really needed to be thinking about, and I was getting need nervous. To, need to deflect. I needed to deflect. So yeah. I threw it out like raw meat to the Christian, and the Christians I found out were very hungry people. They, they would chase the right raw meat. It, exactly they? right. I was off the hook, okay, yeah. and they were, and we were able to pursue this. Uh, what for me was a theoretical deflection. Right. Um, and so I think what I'm hearing you say is let's let's keep the discussion in the right place. So what I say to students is someone produces their inerrancy list, why they object to inerrancy. And what you find is that list morphs. They'll bring up one thing and you'll answer that, and then they'll bring up another and there'll be a new one, and then there'll be a third one, and a fourth and you never get to Jesus. I said, get the person to acknowledge this much. 
is the Bible trustworthy enough that we ought to at least look at the way in which it presents Jesus? If I get a yes to that question, okay, they aren't signing on to inerrancy, mm-hmm. but they're signing on to a respect, a level of respect for Scripture. Right. Now I can talk about Jesus. And yeah. the way I'm going to get them to the Bible is by getting them to Jesus. Exactly. Okay. So, uh, so that's just an apologetic strategy. That's not a that is not a it's theological. Not it's not a theological denial of scripture. Thank and, you. And, and so, I, I think um, helping people uh, see that uh, tactically, if I can say it that way, is an important way uh, to talk about. It. Unfortunately, our our environment is so um, polemicized right now that that gets heard as theology rather than as an apologetic tactic. I, I say all the time, what I'm, what I'm talking about is an approach. It has nothing to do with how a person views the Scripture, it has nothing to do with which system of theology you embrace. This is, this is 100% approach to how to talk about the Bible um, and Scripture and Jesus specifically to skeptical people. And here's the thing I would want to throw in. This is so important. This isn't just about skeptics and non-believers. Most believers, most believers in our seats and pews have a very fragile faith. It's so fragile, they are afraid to look at certain parts of the Scripture. Mm -hmm. They are afraid to have to address certain questions. Their kids come home from college and their Sunday school faith is just rattled. So what I have found, having done this for a lot of years now, is that not only does this give us better answers outside the church, it does a great deal to strengthen the faith of the people inside the church to say, I have some great news. Your faith does not rise and fall by your ability to prove that the Scripture is all true, inspired, or inerrant. All I need are two Gospels and 1 Corinthians, and we're at the resurrection. And if Jesus rose from the dead, game on. That's all we need. Yeah, there's one other thing that's important here, and that is for some people, for some believers, who hold what we might call a more presuppositionalist approach to Scripture, they see any attempt to put the Scripture to the side in one sense as as a as a rejection of what Scripture is and as an affront to what Scripture is. Right. That I get. I understand that. But the but that doesn't help with the reality that when I'm talking to a person for whom the Scripture means nothing, I mean, they don't. That it isn't the inspired Word of God. In fact, everything that the culture has told them is this is an old book of all kinds of things that you shouldn't take seriously. Right. Um, when when I'm trying to get them to just get to the level of respect for what what it is we're talking about and where the material is coming from, I'm actually moving them in a positive direction, um, even though it is far short of not only a presuppositionalist theology, but my own theology as well. But, you know, Dr. Bach, isn't it true that's exactly what happened historically? Because historically, when Jesus was buried, it was game over. Nobody's outside the tomb on Easter morning counting down backwards from 10. That's Two right. different parties decided to embalm that body. They expected him to do exactly what dead people do, stay dead. And what began our faith was an event, and the event is where we have to focus people's attention, and that's why I 
say all the time, if a person can predict their own death and resurrection and pull it off, we should just go with, with, with whatever that person says. It, it is that The simple. way I like to say it is, is that the resurrection was God's vote in the dispute about who Jesus is. <laughs> that if you want to know who Jesus is, <laughs> yeah. okay, if he, if he were lying there in the tomb, that would be one vote. But the fact that he was raised from the dead and seated at the right hand of God, and that God did it, because he's the one who raised Jesus from the dead, the Father did it, that shows uh, that shows what God thinks of this dispute, and that's a dispute that runs through every theological discussion we have about who Jesus is. Back on a, on a, the the bigger theological topic mm-hmm. that is actually underneath all of this, mm-hmm. and that's the the connection of the Old Testament and the New Testament. What are some of the fundamental changes between the Old Testament and the New Testament? And in many ways, what has the church believed about unity and diversity in this? Uh, Mark, let me come to you and. What thoughts you have on that? You bet. As I, as I, I think two central passages that show both continuity and contrast, and in times more contrast than continuity. Right. And it, it depends on which passage you're in and what the issue was. But uh, Galatians three and Second Corinthians three yeah. are two passages, and where Paul, a Jew, arguing for the Corinthians as the change that took place under Moses as under the Spirit. Mm-hmm. The law and the Spirit contrast in Second Corinthians 3. Uh, he said there was a period of time in which there was great glory. Uh, I mean, lightning. I mean, talk about sound and light show at Sinai. <laughs> right. You know, you had the ultimate, uh, you know, Fourth of July kind of celebration right. when the law came. And he said, compared to the Spirit, that has no glory at all. In other words, it, it is it has a diminishing glory, and he actually uses the dimmer board experience. <laughs> I call it the dimmer board experience of Moses yeah. coming off the mountain as the as it gets dimmer. He's going, "Hide your face, Moses. It's looking bad," <laughs> and that tr- gets transferred as an imagery of what I call the big step up. And it's the continuity, but it's the discontinuity. The Old Testament was great. I use the illustration that when my kids told us uh, they were going to have a baby, they brought us a, a, a little set of booties. Uh, those pink booties told us something's coming. Right. Uh, about tw- 11 weeks later, we got a sonogram. Once I saw the sonogram and I saw Fiona, my granddaughter, in the womb, upside down in the supine position with her little pug nose, <laughs> the booties didn't make a bit of difference anymore. Mm-hmm. But when she was born on July, I mean on June 4, uh, and that year, uh, I haven't hardly looked at the sonogram except to make a sermon illustration. <laughs> uh, now that she's 14 and comes running across the church, even as a teen, young teenager, and puts her arms around me and calls me Baba, uh, that sonogram doesn't mean a bit of thing, and right. I haven't pulled out the, the, the baby pictures for a long time. And you don't even know where the booties are. Yeah, and I don't know where the booties are. Yeah, Barbie has the booties. My, my point is, in its time, the law was good, it was perfect, it was righteous, it had everything God wanted it to have at that point, but when you make the move from law to grace. The law came through Moses, grace and truth. So you have have contrast, promise and fulfillment, the story of Israel versus the story of the church. Uh, The law came through Moses, grace and truth through Jesus Christ, a nation centralized versus nations as goal. You've got great contrast between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, the Old Testament and the New Testament. But when Paul says it has no glory in comparison. That's a major contrast, mm-hmm. but it's still continuity. Right. It's a continuity because all of that prophecy that was fulfilled in Christ, the Abrahamic covenant, uh, the blessing of the world, from the beginning God had a, a vision for the world. So the New Testament is not a contradiction, as Andy said. It's, it's not contradictory. It's not antithetical. 
it's just preparatory to, and that's the sequence issue that's so important, right. is that uh, booties have their place, but they don't <laughs> compare to a hug. And, and, and the First yeah. Corinthians 3 passage, of course, we're back to the discussion we had earlier, which is that's about the Old Covenant. That, that's about that's about the pe- what Galatians three calls the pedagogue, right? right. And, and so, um, and yet there are other passages in the New Testament that say um, the Old Testament is wonderful for giving us an example of how we walk with God. Sure. When the when the text, the famous text on inspiration in Second Timothy three is cited, all scriptures inspired. What's probably in view there is the Hebrew scriptures yeah, in particular. Of, a lot of the prophets in the writings. Exactly yeah. right. Now the implication of that is anything that counts for inspiration has this character to it. But the primary referent is 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 yeah. what we would call the Old Testament. And so there is this value that we that we don't want to lose right. about what the Old Testament is even as we recognize that we now have access to things and benefits that it was talking about that the people who lived then longed for, right. um, but that now we get to participate in at least in an initial kind of way. And I think going back to the the two passages, the Corinthians or the Galatians passage in essence said if the law could have done it yeah. Then Christ would not have had to die. Right. And so that that whole issue of uh, the law could not do what only God and Christ and the could Spirit do. could do. That's right. So you have the the at the same time you walk by the Spirit you fulfill the law. And so the intent of the law was a godly life with God. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that. Never was anything wrong with that. But part of it, as Paul says to Timothy in First Timothy one, uh, the the function of the law has a there's a righteous function of the law. That is basically, if I could say it, it's not for your salvation. It's to expose sin, and it's for the lawless, the ungodly, and because it it it's the Galatians thing. It led you to the law was given because of transgression to lead you to Christ. Yeah. So and, the, uh, and what's what's interesting about Romans four is is that Romans four reminds us that it was always that way. That there right. always was a word of God that was to be believed. Yep that led to the declaration that this person is righteous and that part of what happened in the in the period where the law became so central was is that the law moved into a position for some people that it actually was never designed to have right right then Andy, let me start with you, and then you guys weigh in on this, okay? Then how would we summarize this and say, then, what's the relevance of the Old Testament today? Let's start with you, Andy, and then we'll come back. I, uh, I go with what Paul said. It points to Jesus. First Corinthians six, I think, is First Corinthians ten. It serves as an example. Romans fifteen. Um, it teaches us encouragement and endurance. But the Apostle Paul does not set his application ball on an old covenant tee. The thing that motivates Christians or the um, inspiration behind our behavior is just as God in Christ did for us. Ephesians chapter 5, submit to one another out of reverence to Christ, that our application is taken from Jesus' new covenant, new command, to love as I have loved you. So the Old Testament is inspiration, it's principles, it's not application. Um, again, it's, it's stories of endurance, as the Apostle Paul says, it's examples, and, the um, to, you know, the the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 3.16, um, when people quote that verse to me, I, they always say the Bible says, and I say, no, Paul said it. And if you want to know what somebody means by what they said, look at what else they said and look at what else they do. And the Apostle Paul is very consistent about how he appropriates and leverages Old Covenant and Old Testament narrative and content as it relates to the life of the believer. So I think, you know, he sets the 
the pattern and the example for us. And here's another, this may be another topic for another day, but I can't get, I can't get over the fact, again, thinking sequentially, that the Apostle Paul pivoted in one afternoon. I mean, he was the Pharisee of Pharisees who was going to stamp out the existence of the way. And in the course of one afternoon, he pivots from, you know, the all-star lawkeeper to someone who very quickly embraced a completely different worldview and a different approach uh, to faith. And he's the one who I think we should pay closest attention to because he was at the epicenter of the transition post-resurrection. So I think he gives us our clearest picture of how um, new covenant people should appropriate and, uh, you know, consider the Old Covenant. Relevance of the Old Testament. Yeah, I, I think that uh, you get both negative and positive. He says these were things were written for our example, that we should not turn our hearts to evil mm-hmm. like they did. So I would probably broaden the issue of application. I would distinguish what I think Andy's saying by application is precept, in other okay. words, and, right. you know, in, a, in law from that standpoint. Obviously, uh, it has application by principle to us. The other is the positive, written for our admonition, for our instruction. And so it's a great tool to instruct us, if I could say it, in the worldview of God that would take us from creation to consummation, but it would say, how did God choose a people to bring us the Messiah to reach the rest of the world? Mm-hmm. So I think the continuity aspects of all of that uh, fits the contrast. You know, in other words, the the, the contrast of no glory versus total glory right. is in keeping with. And I and it's, it doesn't. He just doesn't destroy the staircase. He just takes a big step up. So he didn't wipe out the first step sure. of value. We're not losing the promise. We're not, we haven't lost the ladder. Right. You know, we still right. have both right. rungs. Right. But we're not on the we're not on the first rung by any means. Daryl, final thoughts on relevancy of the Old Testament today. Well, I think you need to distinguish between the Old. Testament when it functions in relationship to promise, right. which ties us to the Messiah and the covenants, et cetera, which of course is what we're experiencing right now in, in an initial kind of way. And thinking about the Old Testament when it relates to precepts, the 613 commands of the Torah, as that's mm-hmm. traditionally said, in which case those things are enlightening to us about the things that God cares about that's and the kind of distinctive lifestyle that he asked of of people in Israel in contrast to the nations at the time, but they, they, they didn't transfer over to us. Um, they, they, they illustrate and give examples, but they don't we, – we shouldn't treat them as, as the law in the sense that we tend to think about it, uh, even though we can learn from it. Uh, and now, you know, the interesting thing is that the passage keeps echoing in my head is, um, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. In this is summarized all the law. And I'm going, now that – that was, what is was a, the intent? That yeah. is a hook to hang on. You know, that there yeah. I can yeah. I, I can ask myself, how am I relating to God and how am I relating to others? The Ten Commandments work the same way. Table one is about my relationship to God. Table two is about my relationship with others. And when I do that, I've got an ethical center that's driving through the whole of Scripture that I can unify and, and rally around because that's where Jesus is taking me. Jesus is taking me to a faithful walk with God that allows me to interact with other people in healthy ways, and that the Scripture defines as life. Uh, great discussion, uh, and that's this is this is tough. I mean, using consistent language to display continuity and discontinuity, Old Testament, New Testament, because praise the Lord, some things have changed, right? But that promise 
fulfilled in Jesus. Okay, let's talk about then language and how we communicate this entire uh, topic, um, Old Testament, New Testament, to the unchurched. People that haven't grown up, you know, like me, you know, in front of the flannel graph, learning every story, you know, under the sun in the Bible. And I'm thankful for that. So I don't don't view that as a disparaging mark. But I grew up in a wonderful home, heard the text, had it modeled out. I everything that you just described in one of the other sessions, Andy, that was my life. Mm-hmm. But that's not the era, generally speaking, for a lot of folks that we work with today. I can see it here, even at Dallas Seminary. It's different. We have individuals that are here studying with right hearts, right passions. They did not grow up in that environment. They've been believers for a couple of years, and they're putting all these puzzle pieces together right now. And we're helping them with that, and that's a privilege for us to be involved in that. But. Uh, Andy, as you've been thinking through this in language and with sermon series and lessons and books and things like that, this has been a topic of yours for quite some time, to think strategically about the words that we use talking to that audience in particular. So there have been um, a variety of statements that have been pointed towards you if people aren't what I would say, listening to what it is that you're attempting to say. We can all improve in our words. I get all that. You know, that's true of every one of us, okay? But how would you respond to those who say that uh, they they don't understand what you're talking about, okay, and what it is you're trying to get us to think about, preachers in particular and pastors that communicate? And unfortunately, as you know, some have accused you of leaning towards – Marcionism or being anti-Semitic because of the language you're trying to use as it references the Old Testament. And, and you used it a minute ago of saying, okay, great, I'm not going to use the word unhitch because that uh, maybe people have, have surfaced some really good things for us to think about of the language that we use. But in that big giant topic, how mm-hmm. would you respond to all of that in that is we're thinking about language? Are you talking specifically about how I talk to my audience? I'm talking about two things, I guess. Number one, how you talk to your audience, okay? And number two, for those that make these swooping uh, accusations towards you about these things. So those two separate topics, I merged them together there. Well, the the big accusations come from people who have who think theologically, and they cannot, for the life of themselves, apparently they can't seem to think sequentially, and they don't understand that I'm not even talking about theology. I'm talking about an approach to how we talk about the scripture to un to people who are outside the faith, but people who don't. It's not the people who don't have an opinion about faith. We're, we live in a post-Christian culture, as if anybody needs to say that anymore, right? right? So everybody has an informed opinion about the Bible already. Nobody comes with a blank slate. So how do you begin that conversation? So I'm just trying to give people handles, pastors and teachers specifically. How do you, you know, what are the handles to begin that conversation and keep people in the conversation? Because the challenge for us is not what the Bible says. It is what else the Bible says. And here's something I just don't think the evangelical community and leaders especially have come to grips with. A person can find out what's in the Bible without ever reading it, holding it, owning one, or seeing one. 
Once upon a time, you at least had to find one to discover what's in it. And it took forever to read it, and it took you had to really be diligent to find all the parts that are so difficult, you know, you know, to deal with. Not anymore. It's just a few clicks, and it's all there in front of us. So consequently, we have to step back, we have to think sequentially, and we have to think contextually. And so, um, that's that, those are the those are my presuppositions. Those are my assumptions when I come to the text and stand up to teach uh, the scripture. I don't know if that answered your question or not. No, it does. That's 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 very helpful. Uh, get specific on uh, you know. Why do you think people in, in in regard obviously when you even bring up the word Marcionism, I mean that's a oh, that's yeah. a high end loaded technical right. term out of church history and it means very specific thing. Sometimes it's slung around, you know, when I think when we're talking to somebody because we're disagreeing with what they said or we're confused about what they're saying. Or even the issue of the seedbed of anti Semitism uh, right. because yeah. of maybe some of the language that you used in regard to the Old Testament. How would you kind of, what would you say to both of those issues if people made well, that accusation people, towards you? People who listen to me preach consistently know that those things never pass go through their mind because it's so inconsistent with how I consistently preach and teach. The people who've been critical of me drop into a message and they pull it out of context. But the, the broader conversation is they have a different theological framework, and they are afraid that I'm leading evangelicalism, you know, in some dangerous direction, at which for the life of me, I can't quite figure that out. But they have a different worldview. Um, they are presuppositionless for the most part, so they begin with the Bible's inerrant uh, Word of God. Let's begin there. That's just not where I begin because I'm talking to people who that's a non-starter. So why would I, you know, why would I begin the conversation there? The whole anti-Semitic thing, that is so incredibly bizarre because if, you know, kudos to the Dallas Theological Seminary, people who think dispensationally. If let me put it this way, if the early church had taken the Jerusalem Council's advice, and when I the early church, I mean the church fathers and those that followed, if that group of people had taken Jesus' advice about what he said about the law and the prophets, if that group of people had taken um, what the Apostle Paul taught seriously, they would have left the old covenant where it needed to be left with it, as in terms of it's something that points to Jesus. It's inspiring, but it's not our marching orders because the strange thing is, and push back on this if you disagree, the roots of anti-Semitism come from the church baptizing, Christianizing, and allegorizing the Old Testament and bringing it into the church inappropriately because that's where they found the grit and the tension, and that's where they found the fertile soil for persecuting people who didn't follow Jesus. They, it was it was the stories of the Old Testament with it, that within their original context make perfect sense dispensationally, but you bring that narrative into the church and, you know, consequently, even in the Reformation, you know, both sides went to war with each other in Jesus' name. So, um, I, I think, you know, a lot of this is just stirred up by some really bad the theology, some bad theological systems, and some people who just, for whatever reason, don't like me. I, I, see, two, I see two things here. There is a kind of anti-Semitism that pops up, and I work in Messianic ministries, so um, that is involved when the church becomes so detached from its Jewish background that it ceases to see what the Jewish background contributes to the understanding of even what we get in the New Testament. So there is another way that that can flip. And actually, I think some of the people who've accused you of anti-Semitism 
are fearing that that's where some of your rhetoric is going. I don't read it that way, mm. but but I think that's part of what may be motivating it. I, I want you to explain what you mean when you say, I don't talk theologically, because I can hear someone listening to this and going, yeah. you never not talk theologically. Right, talk, right. You know, you're all I, everything that you no. say and has you sa- a theological. And you said that a minute ago. Yeah, well, but I, mean, I, but I want I you to address that, that right. directly because I think that's an well, important. And, and well, I want you need to define what you mean by this. My, what I mean by that, and you're you're exactly right. I don't assume a theological system on behalf of my audience. I don't assume biblical literacy on behalf of my audience. Um, I try to the best of my ability to teach, again, sequentially, that once upon a time there were two groups of people who both held to the Law and the Prophets. One persecuted one, and the other went on to say that a man rose from the dead and fulfilled that very same Old Covenant. They they all believed basically the same thing about the Law and the Prophets, but then there was an event, an event in history that launched a movement that we now call the Church. And it's that's at the epicenter of what we believe and why we believe what we believe. And if a person will embrace that Jesus is the risen Lord and risen Messiah, whatever theological system they want to develop from there going forward, I'm fine because my I am trying to stay on the front lines of people who have walked away from faith or who are considering faith or who are in the church and are reaching for the door to leave the faith. Does that help? Yeah, it does, because I think that I, I think sometimes what people translate, you know, I'm not talking theologically, is, is that somehow theology isn't relevant. It, it is. Oh, no, no, no. But no. I, meant, I meant more in terms of a theological system. You know, there's three theological systems. Right, this right. is the one that I'm trying to make a case from or make a case for. I don't intentionally do that, although, you know, I'm sure at times it, it happens. Sure. Very helpful. Hey, what intentional decisions should we make in the way that we communicate in order to bridge the gap between Christian terminology and many who are unfamiliar with it? Daryl, let me start with you and Dr. Bailey. If you I, I, want to I actually on talk about and I talk about this a lot in cultural engagement, mm-hmm. and I say. We speak a foreign language to most people. They have no idea what our technical terminology means or or even how to connect to it. Let me pick one that is is almost sacred, (laughs) the term sin, okay? Now actually, a lot of people outside the church know what sin is, and whenever they hear it, they don't hear sin, they hear sin, and phaser (laughs) shields go up, (laughs) you know? They're immediately put on the defensive. And so here's how I try and tackle that. I try and I, I, I'll talk to someone and I'll, I'll talk about dysfunction. And I'll say, is your life dysfunctional? Uh, I might actually get a confession to that, to that <laughs> question. And then, and then I might even push and say, and do you contribute to that dysfunction? And I might even get a confession there. Okay? And then I'll turn around and you say, you know what the Bible calls that? The Bible calls that sin. And now we're into a discussion in which someone has already come down the road with me a certain, a certain distance, and we have a different kind of discussion because I've now put this in language that they can begin to get, and I can work on defining even more precisely. Sure. And so there's a lot of translation work that goes in culturally engaging someone who's outside the church. I know that because, as I said earlier, I came to the church from outside the church, and I, I know what the culture taught me about Christianity, and I often say to believers who've grown up in a Christian home, if you never darken the door of a church and your definition of Christianity comes from what you've heard in the general culture, 
how does that make you feel as someone who's a Christian? <laughs> the answer is not very good, because the chances are they aren't going to get it right. Yeah. So there's a lot there's a lot of static mm-hmm. that's got to be dealt with as you are interacting with someone who's completely outside the faith. So when I hear Andy, you know, wrestle with that with that reality. I'm sitting here going, he's wrestling with something that's very, very real and it gets in the way of our communication because we use words that we understand, but we throw them at people for whom they have little or no meaning or a misunderstanding, and that doesn't help them with regard to actually what we're trying to do. Yeah, yeah. What you're saying is so important, and again, I, as a pastor, I, I, would, I would say I have to, I don't have to because a lot of pastors don't, but. I begin with people, mm-hmm. not theology, in terms of, again, I have a theological system, but I, if, you be, if you begin with people, language becomes a much easier thing. Mm-hmm. And, and, and um, Dr. Bach, you just said it, you're looking at a person who knows, you, you're trying to communicate to a person, not make a point. You're mm-hmm. trying to communicate to a person, not use theological language. When you begin with people, I think our language um, and, and if you care about people, and you're not simply trying to make a point, you really are trying to make a difference, I think we can figure out the language, um, the, the language. and again, because we care about people. It's like with your children, you just figure it out because you, you love your children. So um, again, what, what you said, Dr. Bailey, once you had an actual family situation with an actual person in the room, um, it just changes everything, and it should change everything. Yeah, and in fact, when we talk about this, in cultural engagement, I talk about how believers, when they get to know people who are very different than themselves, the first thing they need to do is, is just pay attention to James one nineteen, <laughs> which is be uh, slow to speak, yep. uh, you know, quick to hear, and quick to listen. And I say it's really important to get a spiritual GPS on a person, to just let them tell their story, share their life, and what you're listening for is what's driving them. What influences them? And you're in, and I tell them, mute your theological and heretical meter. Just mute it. You can't shut it off, but mute it. Pay attention. Save some of the stuff that you hear. But don't get in the mode that we often get into of the moment I hear something that's theologically wrong, I'm going to jump on it and correct. Because what you want to do is you want to get to know the person. You want to get them to trust you. And in the midst of that, you're asking, how does the gospel speak into where this person is? Not, 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 you know, the theoretics about where they fall on the grid, but just where they're coming from. And I find that the gospel is able to speak into where most people are, but you have to, you have to determine where that is. And getting a spiritual GPS, which requires listening, it requires not engaging the conversation, engaging the debate. It requires muting that meter for a while. There's going to come a time for challenge because the gospel challenges everybody, but. But you want to you want to step into it, kind of knowing where you're going, and 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 so that is relating to someone and caring about them and hearing their story and finding out what motivates them, finding out if they've had a negative experience with the church in the past, which is worth knowing before you talk about the church. That kind of thing, all that's very very important. It seems to me in how we engage. And then when you do step in, to step in with the right tone. That's exactly that's a whole right. Another topic that's that we exactly could speak right. at on another topic. Well, guys, this has been great discussion. I greatly appreciate it. So, Dr. Bailey, Dr. Bach, uh, Pastor Andy, we appreciate you uh, joining the dialogue. Yeah. And uh, may the Lord help us all as we continue on. It's a critical topic in all three areas that we've talked about here. And um, to think, 
strategically about our words and how we talk about the Old Testament, the New Testament, and uh, to exalt our Savior. So greatly appreciate it, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Eddie. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well.